Good day, everyone, and welcome to the Frontier Space Podcast, a series about how space technology, colonization, and exploration are transforming our solar system. 60 Seconds in Space Arizona-based startup Ho Industries designed a 2.4-kilogram satellite called Thermosat that uses a thermal condenser to boil distilled water into superheated steam for propulsion to stealthily change orbit, deorbit, and avoid collisions. And U.S.-based researchers propose a new CubeSat with water-based propulsion that uses a system called Hydros to electrolyze hydrogen and oxygen for thrust. Very excited to hear from Dr. Andrew Rivkin, a planetary astronomer from John Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory. Andy is a leading asteroid researcher with over three decades of experience researching near-Earth objects and hydrated asteroids with spectroscopy and a passion for dwarf planet series. Greetings, Andy. Welcome to the Frontier Space Podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. How's the uh, the sleet and and freezing snow over in Maryland? <laughs> uh, I think it's I think it's dying down today. We had uh, definitely got a got a, a decent accumulation. I mean, not as much as you know, not not like a foot or anything, but uh, enough that we're probably going to have to deal with it rather than wait for it to melt. Ah, I see. So my first question was, uh, what, what really sparked your interest and in, in drives your motivation in, in uh, pioneering asteroid research for, for humanity? Oh, wow. So um, when I was in graduate school, uh, which is, you know, I, I started graduate school in the early 90s, and uh, my advisor uh, was a, a person uh, named Larry Lebowski, who's, who's uh, happily still still around and still doing stuff. He was um, the first person to really do infrared studies of ice and other uh, water-bearing minerals um, using infrared wavelengths, looking at, at um, solid surfaces. So he was the one who found that the rings of Saturn were made of ice, you know, sorts of things. And he started studying asteroids. He found these hydrated minerals on Ceres uh, and, and some other large uh, asteroids. And I, as his student, naturally uh, kind of followed in that sort of research. Um, and as, as time has gone on, it's, it's the, the uh, data we've been able to take from the ground has gotten better. We've been able to go more, uh, be able to get more information than simply say, yeah, there's something there or no, there's not, and be able to actually uh, identify specific kinds of minerals that have water in them to differentiate ice from from clays that have water in them. Yeah, I, uh, you're really uh, helping spearhead this um, massive data gap in, in hydrated minerals and, and asteroids off off uh, planet. I definitely appreciate uh, your, your everything you're up to and, and, and doing. I was wondering what are the um, what are the benefits of using this water in these um, hydrated near Earth uh, objects and compared to places like like the lunar poles? So that's a great question. Uh, as as you and and your listeners probably know, uh, it takes a lot 
whatever energy to bring material off of the surface of the earth and out into space. Um, it turns out that one of the limiting factors on the, how long you can operate things in geosynchronous orbit is basically the amount of fuel that, that you can bring up to those satellites or that those satellites have on them. Once they can no longer maneuver themselves, um, then they have to be deorbited or else you can't have things up there unable to move and, and, and tumbling and potentially causing a hazard to other geosynchronous satellites. So um, ideally you would be able to refuel those satellites, but again, bringing, bringing fuel from the surface of earth up there um, costs a lot of energy and now you're burning fuel to bring up extra fuel. Uh, if you do the math, it is easier to bring material from a lot of near-Earth asteroids to um, geosynchronous Earth, Earth geosynchronous orbit, um, and it's much more energy efficient to do that. Um, and that's the business case that I think a lot of these asteroid mining companies have been thinking about. The lunar poles have... Um, a similar problem to the surface of Earth in the sense that you have to move something off of the surface of a, of a big body, a, a body with a lot of gravity, at least certainly compared to the asteroids, they, the moon has a lot of gravity. So the, uh, the case for using lunar water, um, at least that I've seen, tends to be limited to nearby uh, nearby bases, you know, maybe bases elsewhere on the moon, maybe bases very close to the lunar poles. That's why you put your base near the lunar poles in the first place. Um, but the um, sort of economic case for mining in space in the nearest term involves these asteroids. You can, you can do it, you can, it can be useful to uh, assets that are already in place in geosynchronous orbit uh, if you can, if you can uh, fetch the material you need from from the asteroids, or refine it, I suppose, after getting it from the asteroids, and then just bring it there to uh, to the satellites in geosynchronous orbit. Awesome. Um, yeah, it's it's really eye opening when you think of the long term um, ramifications on how that'll influence um, the space architecture and, and infrastructure. The, 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 the water ice in these asteroids um, might be more valuable as um, drinking potable water uh, rather than water propulsion, but it kind of depends on um, the uh, progression of the field. Water propulsion systems uh, or, or uh, directly used as um, in, in water electrolysis for uh, oxygen and, and, and hydrogen for rocket propellant or, or these, uh, you know, orbital colonies, which we'd all love to see one day. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it, it, there's a lot of, um, I think there's a lot of nuance that we have yet to really figure out. Um, the, in, in almost all cases, I think, um, the water in asteroids is going to be this form that's um, kind of bound up in the minerals rather than ice. So for instance, um, you know, if you, uh, 
if you if you pick up certain kinds of clays, you know, if you if you go to the store and you buy a bag of kitty litter, um, you know, the, the kitty litter, the minerals that are in in that sort of sort of stuff is is 10% water. Just, I mean, even before the cat, you know, gets a hold of it, it's, uh, you know, it, it just water bound up in those minerals. So uh, a lot of the proposals for using asteroid water involve taking uh, taking rocks, taking rocks like what is was collected on Bennu, say, by Osiris Rex, heating them up to drive off the water and then collecting that water and using that. Um, it's not yet clear how much processing would need to be done to that water to make it safe to drink. Um, a lot of, uh, you know, one of the, the reasons that asteroids are really scientifically interesting is that they are more or less un, unprocessed since they formed four and a half billion years ago. And so a lot of elements that are not found at the Earth's surface that are down in the Earth's core are still kind of mixed in in the asteroids. So you might, you know, extract the water and find it's got a whole bunch of arsenic in it or mercury in it, or at least more arsenic and mercury than we than we like to like to typically drink. So um, I think that's that's definitely a uh, a matter of some ongoing research and one that I know people like uh, Alessandra Springman at the University of Arizona has has written some. Uh, written some some papers about fascinating yeah we'll have to check that out um in in your research paper um that uh it's titled how many uh hydrated near-earth objects are there uh which is really what sparked this 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 conversation um you mentioned c-class or, or or carbonaceous asteroids um what are those and um, what are the asteroid spectral types? When uh, meteorites were first collected uh, and, and brought into the laboratory and, and people got their, their visible and near IR spectra, uh, they found that the different main classes of meteorites also had different um, kinds of spectra. So the, the ordinary chondrite meteorites, uh, which at the time were just called the stony meteorites. Uh, those had a particular spectrum. When asteroids were found with a similar spectrum, they were called S-type, S for stony. Um, the M-type asteroids were named because they had spectra that were reminiscent of the iron metal meteorites, so M for metal. Um, the carbonaceous chondrites are a, a pretty rare class uh, of meteorites. Um, they are uh, the only ones that have hydrated minerals, or at least that commonly have hydrated minerals. Um, they are so named because they, they have carbon. They, they are not the only ones with carbon, but they, they do have carbon. They're, they're very dark. Um, and we think that they formed a little bit further from the sun than, uh, than the Earth did, and that most of these other meteorites. The, C-class asteroids, and again, same the same logic was used. The meteor, the asteroids that had spectra that reminded us of the carbonaceous chondrite meteorites, um, have a a relatively featureless spectrum through the visible on the near IR. Something like a Eros, which is an S-class asteroid, uh, has has 
a spectrum that lets us say, oh, it's got this kind of olivine, it's got this kind of pyroxene. Um, Itakawa has got a similar spectrum. Uh, Vesta, we can look at Vesta and, and see what its rock type is just from the visible linear IR. And again, associate that with a particular meteorite type. But the carbonaceous chondrites uh, are featureless, more or less, so that, that doesn't give us a lot to work with. Um, there is, uh, and, and that's why uh, if you have to look at somewhat longer wavelengths. If you've been following um, work that's been done by the Dawn spacecraft at Ceres, or by OSIRIS-REx at Bennu, or by Hayabusa 2 at Ryugu, a lot of the, the, at least to my mind, most interesting work that's been done is done at slightly longer wavelengths where um, you can measure water and hydrated minerals and, and ice. Um, so the, the specific subgroup of the C-class asteroids that I focus on in the paper that Francesca DeMeo and I focus on this paper are called the CH class. Those do have a kind of a shallow absorption uh, in the red part of the spectrum. Um, and we know from kind of years of, of studies and correlations that, and, uh, that the CH, uh, that when you see that, that band in the red part of the spectrum, you know there's going to be um, hydrated minerals of a particular kind, like the carbonaceous chondrites. Uh, a space telescope would also work, but, uh, you know, we were looking uh, in this paper to try to provide the easiest way to do um, big picture surveys that, again, we thought that people who were interested in finding good targets for mining might might uh, find useful. Thanks. Yeah. I, uh, thanks for clarifying. I got a much better understanding now. Um, how many C-type or hydrated asteroids do you estimate in the near-Earth object population? A lot of numbers in your paper. Yeah, the the short answer, I guess, uh, is that we expect something like uh, between sort of twenty five to seventy five, larger than one kilometer. When we look in the main asteroid belt, and we can say, okay, how many of these CH type asteroids, or what fraction of asteroids are the CH type? Um, we go to people who have done the calculations of of where near-Earth objects come from in the asteroid belt. And that's that's actually the big uh, a big science question, uh, among others, that, that kind of we touch on here. We we don't know when we look at the at the main asteroid belt, we see that it's really dominated by these C class, C complex asteroids. These dark asteroids are most of what's in the main belt. And when we look at the NEOs, we could already see that it's not most of what's in the NEOs. Um, something is already cutting down those numbers. You, um, uh, in your paper, you estimated an um, average water concentrations of the um, near-Earth object asteroids to be around 10% by mass in water. Yeah, the um, those numbers are based on um, the the meteorites that we think are most like the CH asteroids, they have something like five to ten percent uh, water per you know per per mass. Wonderful. Yeah, it sounds like there um, uh, are um, a lot of challenges in, in the present day in, in imaging these hydrated minerals from the Earth's surface. Sure. 
the um the main problem from the Earth's surface is that we have water in the atmosphere. Um, and, and of course, that's good because we didn't have water in the atmosphere. It would be a, a tough place to live. But since we are looking for water on the surfaces of these bodies, it's basically like, you know, trying to, we, we have to account for the water in the Earth's atmosphere and, and correct for it. Uh, when we try to look for the water directly and not this this absorption band in the in the red, uh, that takes uh, good weather. It takes being in a, a good site. Right now, there are very few sites that can actually do this work. Almost all of the work is done from the top of Mauna Kea. The near Earth asteroids pose an additional uh, complication, which is that they are uh, well, they're they're hot compared to main belt asteroids. Um, and that heat also uh, comes out as infrared light. And so to be able to measure the absorption band of hydrated minerals, you now not only have to deal with the Earth's atmosphere, but you have to correct for the, the infrared light that's coming off of these objects the uh, ideally, in a lot of ways, this would be done from space. The James Webb Space Telescope uh, will uh, allow some great measurements to be made, and actually, I'm I'm on one of the teams that will be measuring asteroids from with with the James Webb Telescope. But uh, you know, it, the James Webb is a uh, is going to be in very very high demand. Plus, it's designed to look you know at at the far reaches of the solar system is designed to look at, you know, galaxies far away and stuff. So it can't track fast enough to look at a lot of near Earth objects. In principle, um, you know, that would be another another kind of approach to build something not as not as capable and and big and fancy as the James Webb Space Telescope, but just put something more modest, but with a dedicated mission of just looking at near Earth objects. Ah, it sounds like an exciting new mission you're proposing. <laughs> it's it's true. Well, and it's it's funny though because there is also to to go back somewhat. Uh, I think there is a legitimate question of you know there's there's great science to be done, but in the context of if this were to be done to help uh, asteroid mining companies, you know it's it's legit to ask you know who who would benefit you know and if if uh, American taxpayers say we're being asked to pay for such a mission to make sure that, you know, the uh, the results get to benefit, you know, the American taxpayers in turn, or or whichever country or or humanity as a whole. So it's uh... yeah, that's that's definitely important, and there definitely uh, should be more incentives in 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 society for collect this, this data. And yeah, you. Uh... Hey, you mentioned uh, space telescopes. How much could telescopes and instrumentation on, on the moon and Mars uh, help us understand and quantify the spectra in these hydrated asteroids? And where might you, uh, where would you want to build one? The moon is, is an interesting uh, possibility. Uh, like I was saying, right, the Earth's atmosphere is one of the big problems. And certainly the moon would get around that problem. You know, I think a space telescope not too far from Earth uh, would be would be fine. 
I think I'd be perfectly satisfied with that. Um, and you know, you could get uh, get the data back to Earth relatively easily uh, if I felt super ambitious and and uh, you know, money and communication were no object, then I might actually move it further in toward the sun, looking outward. Um, people who have been uh, advocating or, or studying NEO search telescopes uh, for, for quite some time have advocated for an object in close to the orbit of Venus, not, not orbiting Venus, but at that kind of distance from the sun, because that way, um, you could look outward and find basically anything uh, that would approach the Earth. While if you're at Earth's orbit, you'd have to look both in toward the sun and away from the sun. Ah, fascinating. So, Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of synergy between some of the uh, the asteroid mining topics of interest and things like planetary defense. Um, and for that matter, uh, people who, you know, the, the idea of sending astronauts to asteroids, which was the, the policy, you know, in the, in the Obama administration, um, and may, may eventually make a, you know, make a comeback. There are a lot of the questions that you want to answer to do one of those things that actually apply to, to most of them. Um, so um, my next questions was, uh, how much more accessible is the water ice in the near-Earth object asteroids compared to the uh, lunar poles? In order to bring material, uh, this is an interesting question, and it's it's one that we we kind of had to had to juggle a few different numbers for. The measure of accessibility is is this uh, number called uh, delta V, which again I'm sure you and your listeners are, are familiar with. And the uh, the lunar poles are uh, obviously it's much easier to get to the moon than most places, but the lunar gravity is uh, requires enough energy to get to 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 you know to do the do the trip. Um, that it does make lots and lots of asteroids more accessible uh, or, or requiring less energy. Um, depending on um, whether you, on how big of an asteroid you want to visit, um, we estimated that something like between 10 and 30 of them uh, that are larger than one kilometer uh, should be more accessible than uh, going to the surface of the moon and coming back. Um, if you don't care about size, then it's more like, um, you know, 500 to 1,000, 400 to 1,000, something, something like that. Um, oh, right. Uh, another factor which may or may not be important when you're doing these things is this is strictly a matter of the energy that's required. So a matter of how much fuel you're going to bring to go and come back. It doesn't factor in time. So no matter, um, you know, it, it may be, it may require much less energy to go to some near Earth object and come back, but it might also take you 10 times as long or 100 times as long. Um, we, uh, 
kind of imagine that in this kind of future where you're where you're mining asteroids like this, you're maybe always going to have something on the way there, something on the way back. It doesn't really matter so much um, how long it takes. But um, but you know we're not we're not investors, we're not venture capitalists. We don't know if if uh, you know we don't if there's going to be some pressure to to show profits right away or something like that. That's that's certainly something that uh, other folks would have to have to think about. Yeah, as um, he, he mentioned that um, most of the hydrated mass in these near-Earth objects, they're found in a few of the largest hydrated near-Earth objects uh, with, with diameters from 3.2 to 1.71 kilometers. And I started thinking about it more. And, you know, these um, large NEOs, the, these hydrated um, asteroids, they're I feel like they're kind of relatively easy to claim if you start thinking about it. You know, you just like send a probe and lander there or something. And uh... yeah, the um, that uh, that kind of goes back to the ethics uh, questions again, and and the legal issues. There there are um, there are various international treaties that have been passed or that have been proposed or. I guess some of some of both. Um, so nations cannot claim territory in space, and um, but uh, nations or companies can, as I understand it, uh, claim or or can extract resources and make use of resources. It's a matter at this point of um, of. Uh, figuring out some of those details and, and some countries have been um, trying to move the legal questions forward. Uh, the United States, Luxembourg and the UAE, I think, have all kind of passed laws that have been relevant to asteroid mining. Um, the, you know, among the questions are going to be if, uh, if you get the first company to go to wherever it is, whether it's, it's, it's uh, Bennu or 1996 FG3 or any of the other big ones that I mentioned and start a facility there, is it just going to be so, is it going to be able to establish a monopoly and keep anyone else from, from doing it just because it's not going to be economically feasible to have more than one company? Yeah, these, that's, these sorts yeah. of things that, yeah, these questions that have, have been, um, it's kind of unfortunately the sci-fi meets you know, meets meets uh, law, and uh, people like thinking about you know Han Solo dodging through the uh, <laughs> through the asteroid field, but uh, <laughs> but we're also going to need the people sitting down and, and figuring out you know what's what's in bounds, what's out of bounds, and what what the consequences are for breaking those laws. Yeah, yeah, a lot of really interesting uh, points there, and in, in regards to the mass um estimates of the water ice um i remember you you mentioning um that there was more water ice estimated to be in the hydrated near-earth objects than at the lunar south poles in, in the asteroid population that's uh one kilometer above that came out to be uh 480 to 800 billion kilograms of water ice in the near-Earth object asteroids 
more accessible than the lunar south poles which which had estimates of around 200 to 740 billion kilograms of water ice it's really uh mind-boggling to think about this these numbers <laughs> yeah these these are um big numbers i wish the 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 thrusters that uh you know people have been proposing uh or or been actually putting on sale uh using water uh, and i think uh, looking toward a future of, of using water from asteroids to propel those um you know those are are typically at least that I've seen, talking about a, maybe a kilogram or a few kilograms uh, of, of fuel. So certainly that seems like that would last, last us a very long time. But um, it, the, uh, we also seem to be pretty good as a species at um, using up lots of things when we're, we're you know, given up, given the, the, the chances, you know, not that, uh, not that we're going to exhaust the asteroids, you know, anytime soon. But, but on the other hand, you know, I'm I'm sure that the the first Europeans to come to North America figured that there was, you know, were plenty of trees. They've, they've never run out of trees, and, and uh, never run out of bison and, and all that stuff. Um, and and even just thinking about the uh, the bandwidth of, uh, you know, we're we're here sitting. Uh, hundreds of miles apart, you know, with, with a video quality and an audio quality that's as good as the television that I had, you know, growing up sort of thing. And, uh, you know, I, I think as, um, as our appetite for, for uh, the kinds of, of things delivered from space, you know, the, the reason that, that we expand our, our uh, geosynchronous satellites and our communication satellites capability would be to deliver, you know, faster and faster internet speeds to, you know, greater and greater fractions of the Earth's surface. Um, and if we built, you know, more and more capable satellites to do that, um, you know, the demand might, might get pretty big. Um, I, I don't have a good sense and I, uh, Wish I did have a good sense of, you know, whether whether that many kilograms of water is something that, at current rates, would last, you know, a thousand years or ten thousand years or fifty years or I I, I don't know, but um, uh, I think a lot of people view it as um, at least a lot of the advocates for for asteroid mining view this as kind of just taking the taking the first step out and that as uh, and then I suppose mining, you know, as you move out in the, into the solar system, different places become counting as accessible. So uh, these asteroids that are accessible to Earth maybe are not going to be the most accessible ones from Mars or et cetera. Awesome. Well, this has been uh, really eye-opening. And uh, thanks a lot for your time, Andy. Um, sure thing. My pleasure. Thank you. But, uh, and, and, and keep up the great work with, with uh, James Webb and uh, this this future space telescope one day. <laughs> uh, Thank you. Yes. All right. Thank Take you. care. You too.